All right, why are we in Galatians? Well, I want to do a two-part installment. I have the privilege of preaching in the main service next Sunday morning, and I've chosen my subject. And it involves unity and community, the priorities necessary to enjoy what God intended when he saved you and made you a part of his divine family, the Father's family, Ephesians 3. And uh, our pastor, John, has spent a good bit of time talking about unity and community. And there's a passage I want to preach next Sunday that uh, I intend to share with the congregation as essential Christian attitudes and actions to promote community and unity. Not only will it promote unity, it maximizes influence. Because unity will deny you an experience that a Christian ought to experience or enjoy. That's what Philippians chapter 2 says. There's consolations in Christ. There's encouragement in Christ. There's realities in Christ you will forfeit if you live in a divisive reality, a family, a a community, a church. Um, It disconnects God's people not only from one another, but from the pleasures and abundance that's in the body of Christ as a child of God. So that'll be next Sunday morning for the entire church family, but I wanted to make an installment to this part of Grace Church's family cornerstone because it's been circulating in the world in which I live and function, and it has to do with dealing with the disappointment and failure of sin. One of the things that can create disunity and divide community, God's people from each other, Handicapping their witness as well as their experience in Christ is sin, failure. God's people falter. We all fall down. Sin is a community issue that we all struggle with. It's a reality in Christianity. When we get back to James in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, you're going to see a verse, the second one of chapter 3. We all stumble in many ways. John says in his first epistle, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Say we have no sin. Present tense. We are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The claim that I don't have challenges is a false claim. It's a deceptive perception. First John goes on to say, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. And his word is not in us. No Christian wants to be in the business of looking heavenward and saying, you're lying. You say I'm a sinner, but I'm telling you I'm not. We would never make that claim. Because we recognize we do all stumble in many ways. Adam stumbled in the garden when he partook of the forbidden fruit with Eve. Abram faltered when he lied to Abimelech. Jacob faltered when he stole his father's blessing. Moses faltered when he struck the rock. David faltered when he lusted after Bathsheba. Solomon faltered when he pursued the false gods of his his wives. Elijah faltered when he wanted to die out of despair. Jonah faltered when he ran from God. John the Baptist faltered when he questioned his identity, the identity of Christ, rather, Peter faltered when he denied Christ. Peter faltered again when he compromised the believer's liberty in Christ. Paul faltered when he did that which he did not wish to do. Timothy faltered when he fell victim to his fears. 
We all fall down. Sin is an issue. And when sin happens, it's a failure that impacts not just us. Sin is catastrophic to us. It's one of the downsides of our human reality. We're not privy to or aware of or perceiving the depth of damage that occurs when we choose to violate the will and the way of God. Sin is a trespass. Sin is rebellion. Sin is destructive. Harbored sin is toxic. It's like cancer. If you could see it, you would never abide it or allow for it. You would address it. Yet we struggle with it in our fallen humanity. And when we sin, we are damaged by that sin. Now listen to me. And when we sin, we damage others because of that sin. Sin is not an isolated thing. You may do your sin in isolation. No one else but you and God may know. But it is not true that that sin does not affect those with whom you have to do. And the closer they are, the greater the injury that occurs. Sin known or not known, sin private or made public, has injurious effects. It disappoints the people around you. You may be disappointed. But they are certainly disappointed. Their expectation not met, their, their, their desires not realized, promises made not kept, realities not experienced that really are obligations that are forfeited because somebody says, I'm going to love me more than I love him and I love you. And that sin, that disappointment is divisive. It's destructive and it can divide a community, it can divide a family, it can divide a church. If you want to experience unity and community, you have to deal with the dis disappointment that goes with failure in our humanity because of our depravity, and we do live in community, and that involves injury. So what do we do with that? I want to offer you some priorities today that... God offers to us by way of prescription. And you're going to feel me press on you today. I, I always look at my opportunities to share God's word to you as discipleship from the front. I recognize that the Bible and the truth is necessary for you to know it, but it's not acceptable to know it and not live it. And part of the challenge of knowing it is how to live it. And so the purpose today is to help you deal with the disappointment and the failure that occurs in community, maybe in your family, because of sin. I want to offer you some biblical priorities. We're going to start, and I'm going to, we're going to be in a lot of places. So I'm going to do my very best to hustle. That means hurry from where I came from. That means you're going to have to hurry with me. There's some things that I want to touch on that I've talked about. There's some other things I've not talked about, to my knowledge, with you that I want to dig into. Number one, dealing with disappointment and the failure of sin. Priority number one, the priority of restoration. The priority of restoration. Brethren, chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, this is in the body. This is in the family. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass. Trespass means you're off the path. The flavor of this word is you're off the path, but you didn't just automatically choose to get off the path. 
I mean, it's true sometimes you look sin in the face and go, I'm picking that and I'm rebelling against God. I know what is expected of me and I'm rebelling, I'm refusing. But more normatively in your journey of grace, you get off the path because you stumble off the path. It, something affects you, a trigger, it's a stumble. It's a failure, it's a sin, but it's not the premeditated kind. It's the not, I got up this morning and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to rebel against God, injure everybody I know, ruin my reputation. That's what I'm doing today. It's just not normative. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm saying it's rare that it happens. If anybody is caught, like in a trap, in a trespass, a sin, you who are spiritual, Restore, there's the main verb, right? This is a present active imperative. This is not optional. So if you know anyone in your sphere of relationship and influence who's off the path, they've been caught in a trespass, they're not living right, you know it's destructive for them, you know they're in violation of God's will, restore such a one Restore is a Greek word which means to mend, like a net. It's used in the Gospels of the disciples, the fishermen, mending the nets in the boat. Taking something that was functional, that wasn't functional now, and doing something to it so it could be restored to use. It's used of setting broken bones. It means to restore so it's useful again. So that it can be useful in a way that it once was. Why? Because when you fall into sin, you're not useful. You're broken. It's defective. What could happen and should. If you're a dad, you're defective as a dad. If you're a husband, you're defective as a husband. If you're a brother, you're defective as a brother. You're not able to provide what you're supposed to provide because you are in sin. Known or not known. And if it is known to those around you, they have an obligation, I call it a priority, to restore. To restore, to put back together, to mend, to optimize. The requirement is restoration. The goal is restoration to function and relationship to heal broken relationships, and to heal broken function. Who does this? Verse six or verse 1, chapter 6, those who are spiritual. Now, contextually, this introduces the second priority for unity and community. The priority of spiritual submission and spirit connection. I would even add a word, cooperation. Go back to chapter 5, verse 25, because chapter 6 happens, but it's connected with what precedes. And what precedes is there's life in the Spirit of God. If you live by the Spirit or walk by the Spirit, chapter, one, chapter 5, verse 16, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you're led by the Spirit, you produce the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The fruit, rather. 
It's the basket of the things that express the life of God in real time in the world in which you live. If you are led by the Holy Spirit, He's your leader, you're the follower, you're walking, you're doing your life in Him, connected to Him, you produce fruit, supernatural fruit. And I want to pick it up in verse 25, and I, I know I've touched on this before. I don't remember how much, but it's certainly worth noting. Verse 25, chapter 5, before verse 1 of chapter 6. First class condition, it reads as a conditional clause, if we live by the Spirit. He is not saying it may be true or it may not be true. That's the conditional if. It may be true that you live by the Spirit, it may not be true. That is not what he's saying. First class condition, since you live by the Spirit. It's an emphatic if. I like this illustration. It works for me. Hopefully it'll help you. If I stand before you today and say, if I'm a man, treat me like a man. Am I saying I'm gender confused? I am not. I might be a man today, might be a gal tomorrow. That's not what I'm saying, although I realize that's more potentially true in our culture than ever before. But when I say, if I'm a man, treat me like a man, I'm saying, since I'm a man, treat me like one. It's an emphatic if. This is an emphatic if, verse 25. Since we live, since our life and all of its, its, its sustenance and value and abundance, since we live by the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of God, let us, watch this, walk by the Spirit. Walk is stoideo. It's a word, a military term. Let us stay, I'm going to translate it for you, in step with the Holy Spirit. It's like the Holy Spirit is the sergeant who's giving marching orders. There's a cadence, left, right, left, right, left, right, keeping the platoon in step. And the sergeant, the commander, the director is giving the cadence. Since you live, since life is in the Spirit of God, since the supernatural eternal life that you were saved to enjoy, transformed to experience, since you live and experience that by the person of the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit lives in me, leads me, empowers me, stay in step with the Spirit. The Word of God is inspired by the Spirit of God. This is the revelation of His marching orders. He lives within you. He prompts you with appetites and passions consistent with His prescriptions. And you walk in step with that. And when you walk in step with the Holy Spirit, hence the priority of connection and submission. He's the leader. Harry's the follower. Every morning I get up, it's this. Or I'm out of order. I don't experience the life of God. It's surrender and submission. It's connection and cooperation. Reading the Word of God is an essential directive each day. It's the GPS. I don't know where I'm going. He knows where I need to be traveling. He knows how I need to get there. He knows what I require. And in order for me to live and arrive at the destination that he has prescribed, I need directions turn by turn. If you understand that, would you say amen? 
And if you don't understand that, you don't understand how to enjoy the life of God through the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is your calibrator. The Word of God is your prescriber, your turn-by-turn director. Submit to that. The spiritual are those who do that. Are the spiritual without sin? Nope. Are they pastors with robes and deeper voices when they talk about God? They are followers of Jesus Christ who are submitted submitted to, connected to, and are cooperating with the prescriptions and promptings of the Spirit of God who's a person. And those spiritual ones, not perfectly following or listening or surrendering, but committed and trending and by way of direction, they are the ones who are in the business of restoring. You know why that is? Because if you're not spirit-led, spirit-filled, spirit-directed, spirit-empowered, you're not constructive. Listen to me, you're destructive. You engage a sinful person as an unspiritual person, you're going to do more harm than good. And that's part of what creates division and disunity. It's not that I'm not telling someone the truth. It's how I'm telling them the truth. Or I'm offering them an opinion that's my preference, not God's prescription. The priority of restoration includes the priority of spiritual submission, connection, and cooperation. You live by the Spirit. You give life by the Spirit. Therefore, you have to get in step with the Spirit. Let me just pause for a minute. That means you've got to get God's view on a matter. Not your view, His view. And you need to do what Jesus would want you to do in light of that view. And one of the things he wants you to do in that condition is restore someone who's not in that condition. Non-negotiable. And then thirdly, you depend. So you depend and call out for empowering grace from the Spirit of God. Because without me, Jesus said, you, Harry Walls, can do nothing. Nothing. Yeah, but I have a degree. I've been a pastor for a long time. I've been a Christian a long time. I I got this. No, you don't have anything. The presumption you have something in your humanity that you can do without the empowering grace of the presence of God and the direction of the promptings and prescriptions of God is a delusion. You can't do it. Therefore, you have to be intentionally committed to connecting to the Spirit of God. That's a priority. Connection. Priority, submission, connection, and cooperation. Priority number three, the priority of protection, not self-promotion. The priority of protection and not self-promotion. Let me say it a different way. Don't lift up yourself by putting someone else down. Look at verse 26. It's interesting. After you're told to walk in cadence with the Holy Spirit because you live by Him, you're immediately told something to not do. Let us not become boastful. That's inflated vainly. Let us not become boastful. That's the main verb. It means to elevate yourself. 
to elevate yourself in attitude, action, and with words. You can be boastful and not say a word by the whole, how you hold your head, how you look down your nose. You can do a lot of things. 60% of communication is nonverbal. People know what you're communicating, whether you say a word or not. Stop. Do not allow. Don't allow yourself to become self-promoting. Don't elevate yourself. Notice the participles that modify the main verb of the thing you're not to do. By challenging one another. Challenging is to compare yourself to someone else. That's the heart of the root of the meaning of the word. You challenge someone by comparing yourself to them. My dad's stronger than your dad. I'm stronger than you are. I'm smarter than you are. It's that flavor, and the, the context of this involves failure, theirs. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, even if. You see that? Even if what? Even if they fumbled the ball. Even if they have fallen into a trespass. This is a priority you do, you must pursue because it's a human tendency in our depravity that when Harry fumbles the ball, you want to elevate yourself by comparing your behavior, your virtue, your holiness, your attitudes, your actions to mine when I'm in the ditch. This says, stop elevating yourself by comparing yourself to someone else, comparing them in their weakness with you in your strength. And the reason you do that, and it's an ugly word, because you envy one another. Because you want the respect, regard, prestige, because you want what they have, listen to me, even at their expense. The word envy is an ugly word. I not only want what you have, not only do I not want you to have it, I'm willing to exploit you at your expense and at my benefit in order to get it. That's what boasting does. It picks somebody, yourself up and puts somebody else down. I've written it this way. It's a twisted pursuit of feeling good because they've done bad. The comparison you make implicitly or ex explicitly is an effort to diminish or discount them because you want to enjoy a position they had and the respect they enjoyed prior. Now, I know I'm not talking to you, but I am talking to the person next to you. Because there's something in our humanity, in our journey to Christ-likeness, that needs to be told, stop doing this. Don't do this. It is so naturally human when somebody else fumbles the ball to elevate yourself by comparing yourself to them, implied or explicit, all in an effort to discount them so you can elevate yourself. There's something ugly in our fallenness that's really okay. Instead of tearful, painful remorse in our heart, oh, that just crushes me. There's something ugly that's potentially in us 
that sees an opportunity. And therefore, unity must enjoy or include the priority of protection. Who? The sinner. The sinner gets protected. It's not helpful for the sinner. I don't mean they're not going to be addressed. We're going to talk about that. But certainly not exploited so that you can be elevated. Don't self-promote, protect. You're to be hurt, helpful, not hurtful. Restoring means you pick them up and fix them up. And it means you can't tear them down. We're going to get into chapter 3 in James. Words are powerful. They give life and they produce death. There's power in your tongue. The little member that you enjoy the use of today can do good or not good. Boastful is the expression of not doing good to someone else's detriment because you're not protective, you're self-promoting by the exposure. The unnecessary exposure. So who does it? The spiritual. They have a priority of restoration. They practice the priority of spiritual connection, cooperation because of spiritual submission. Third priority, the priority of protection and self the priority of protection, not self-promotion. How do they do it? Go back to verse 1, chapter 6. Gently. It's meekness. It's powerful. It's not weakness. It's softly, not harshly. It's graciously, not legalistically. It's courageously, not fearfully. It's power under control, and it involves courage and resolution. It's gentle because, one, you're aware of your own humanity, your own frailty, your own feet of clay. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. If a guy says he has no sin, he's a liar. We said that. We all stumble in many ways. The guy talking to you is a fellow stumbler. And out of that recognition, that humility, that rightful perspective, you deal with others because you could be them. Aware of their heartache and pain. There's a compassion to dealing with sinners. Sin sinners are broken. They may be blind, but they're broken. They may stand up and declare their sin. They may say, this is the way God made me, and I know it's in direct contradiction to Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, but this is what I'm going to do. They're angry, they're hostile, but you know what they are? Broken. And what they need, if they're in the body of Christ, standing in rebellion or confusion, is people to handle them gently, not harshly. Courageously and boldly, but kindly. I'm not saying you can't say the hard things. You have to say the hard things. You speak the truth in what? Love. Love has a meaning. It has definition. 15 verbs in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is this way. When love is operational, it has these characteristics. 
Don't call it love if it's not love. And if you're going to deal with a brother in love, deal with them in the truth of what love involves, not just the truth they need to hear. Gently. Notice what it says also in verse 1. Not only gently, but guardedly, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Guardedly. I'm just going to summarize it. It's pretty much self-explanatory. What happened to them could happen to me. And I could be tempted and lifted up in pride and self-righteousness in recognizing their failure and their need of my support. I could be tempted either because I fall victim to that or I'm impacted adversely in that or I can be tempted to be ungodly, unspiritual in the transaction of restoration. Number four, the priority of admonition. The priority of exhortation under repentance. Go back with me. I want to show you the heart of, heart of heaven and to uh, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Let me say it this way. The priority of restoration includes the priority of passionately pursuing and biblically engaging, admonishing and exhorting. Because you can't restore someone who's not repentant. And the first step is to help them see their condition and call them to the sorrow of a change of mind and direction. Sinful people are in harm's way. That matters to God. In the context of Matthew 18, Jesus is talking about stumbling blocks that come in the world. And he's exhorting his people to not be the cause of stumbling, causing young believers to fumble the ball as it relates to pleasing God and following God. Don't cause them to stumble. Better for you that a millstone tied around your neck, cast into the heart of the sea. It would be better than that for you than for you to be a cause of stumbling for a young believer. And then he picks it up in verse 12, that whole context of stumbling and the consequence of injuring a young believer and being the cause of it. He says, as opposed to being a cause, you be in the rescue business, verse 12. What do you think? Jesus talking. Verse 12, chapter 18, Matthew. If any man... So this is kind of like normal. If you're a human being, this is typical. If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray. Do you see gone astray? He's wandered off. It's the same flavor of caught in a trespass. The gate was open, the fence was down, he wandered off. If anyone goes astray, does he not, this man who has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, just the one, so does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? You know what that is? Passionate pursuing. Verse 13, if it turns out that he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which had not gone astray. 
Verse 14, so it is not the will, watch this, verse 14, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, these are little ones by way of spiritual maturity. Not just talking about children, he's talking about spiritual children. If you have a person who wanders from the fold, he's in harm's way. There is a heart of the Father, the heart of the Good Shepherd, who says, I'm going to passionately pursue them to recover them because they're in danger. And if I recover them, there's joy. There's joy for the recoverer and there's joy for the Father. In the presence of the angels, there is much joy, Luke says, chapter 15. That is the heart of priority in community to maintain unity when failure and straying and trespass occurs you passionately pursue the one who is wandering and then when you arrive wherever it is they are there is biblically engaging you do something when you pursue them and find them you admonish them. You exhort them. Word I want to use because it's a biblical term, it just has a negative implication as you confront them. If I say I'm going to confront you today, you would probably consider those words negative. But in a biblical context, when you confront someone, you're, it's not negative. It's actually the care of concern that requires you to actually say courageous things in a gentle way meant to help someone see what they can't see. Deal with what they're not dealing with. So Jesus gives a prescription of what you do when you engage. This is the context for what I call biblical restoration. Now, about every place I've ever been, it's called biblical discipline. I will not argue that there's no discipline. But the goal of this passage is not how you get there, but where you're trying to get, which is restoring the straying sheep. What do you do? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives a prescription. If your brother sins, he's straying, he's caught in trespass, Watch this. Go and show him his fault. Help him see. And you do that where? On the grace walk? Do you do that over the internet? You do that in private. This is face-to-face, person-to-person. This is you and them. This is one-on-one. This is showing someone their need, their condition, their fault, their sin. How do you do that? Gently. What's the goal of that? Restoration. You want them to be optimized. You want them to recover. And what are you calling them to? Repentance. Change your mind, Harry. Go in a new direction. Metanoia. Noia is the way you think. Meta is a new direction. Change. Change the way you're thinking. Change the way you're feeling. Change the way you're acting. You're living in sin. You're in danger. 
It's destructive. You're forfeiting life. You're injuring yourself. You're injuring others. And I am going to pursue you. And when I find you, I'm going to help you see your fault. Go over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's for added effect. (laughs) This is a powerful moment. Turn there quickly. This is better than I thought it was. <laughs> this may be familiar to you, but I want to punctuate its content because this is everything. You pursue them passionately and you engage them biblically. Don't engage them if you're not going to engage them biblically. If you happen to catch up to them, you happen to sit down with coffee with them, or you happen to catch them at home or at work or wherever they are, do not engage unbiblically. You must be loving and telling the truth. If you don't tell the truth in love, it's destructive. It's natural to be frustrated. What are you doing? You can, you can have all of this energy All of this self-righteous and sometimes you feel justified indignation. Don't be deceived into thinking that's helpful. Loving, gentle, careful, pursuing, biblical. Now there you are, you're with them. What do you do with them? Chapter 5, verse 14. I urge you, do you see it? I exhort. The word means I'm, I'm challenging you. It's a passionate term. It's paracolet. I'm calling you to do something. I urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Now, verse 14 introduces the idea that every confrontation isn't the same. There's different flavors, different approaches, because you're dealing with different kind of trespass sinners. And for the person who's unruly, let me give you a definition for that, out of line. They're not walking in the way they ought to walk. They're not talking in the way they ought to talk. This is where you get the word for neuthetic counseling. You admonish them. You admonish them, listen to this, very important, through instruction. You appeal to their mind. The heart of nutheo is mind, nuas, your mind. You confront them, you admonish them, and you address this, the way they're thinking. You appeal to their mind by supplying biblical, doctrinal, and spiritual substance. I like to put it this way. This is exerting positive pressure on someone's logic and reasoning, urging them to choose the best path and God's best for them. This is helping them to think right. Because metanoia, repentance, is a change of mind. And if you do not address their mind with the truth, you handicap the potential. For the out-of-line and unruly, this is a face-to-face conversation and exhortation. This is me and you. I love you. Because I love you, I'm having this conversation. And I can tell you as a pastor and as a brother, I've had a lot of these. 
They are not measured by the outcome. They are measured by what you do and how you do it. And the way you do it is you go face to face with the truth that will help them see what they can't see. Next category in this first Thess 5 passage is the faint of heart. The faint of heart literally means the little of soul being defined as weak in conviction and encourage and courage. Weak in conviction and courage. So the main goal for this person who's weak in conviction and in their courage to follow biblical conviction, you come alongside and you paramuthetomai. You speak the truth in love, encouraging them, that's the heart of the word, with words. Hey, you can do this. You need to do this. This is the encouragement. Mutha'amai has the idea of you tell a story rooted in the truth that is meant to strengthen someone else's soul. This is used of Alexander the Great. He was prone to depression. He would have men come or individuals come to encourage him in his discouragement. It's hard to believe a guy who conquered the whole known world was discouraged, but he was. This word means if they lack courage, if they lack conviction, strengthen their conviction and encourage and strengthen their heart. You can do this. You need to do this. There's a lot riding on this for you and for those with whom you have to do. Third category, the weak. Now the word weak is a little bit misleading. It's so weak they have no strength. It's the word for strength with a big X. You're not just supporting somebody who's faint of heart. You're actually reaching down and carrying them, the weak. You pick them up, you carry them, you put them on your back, you help them because they are unable to help themselves. You help and hold them up spiritually. The way you might say it is, I've got you and I'm with you. I'm going to walk you all the way home. There's another category, and that's everybody. Actually, maybe we should say it differently. All those categories are summed up in one big category, and I'm going to call it prayerful patience. Chapter 5, verse 14, be patient with everyone. You know why? Because sinners don't always do what they should do when they know they ought to do it. They don't all of a sudden absorb your strength. Sometimes you're rescuing someone who trying to get them to shore, they're nearly trying to drown you. You have to be patient. You have to be trusting in God and letting God work. Here's what I'd like to say here. Be prayerfully patient. Give time and opportunity. Transformation is not always instant. And when repentance occurs, it's rarely fully mature. So be patient. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I've got 10 minutes, and I'm going to use them. Because if you want to know the truth, this is where I really wanted to get today. Because in my humble observation, this whole business of repentance, who do you restore? The repentant. You can't restore an unrepentant person. 
If a person's overtaken in a fault, the only way you can help them is they know they're at fault. They're off the path. They're caught in a trap. So repentance is essential for helping a sinful individual. You don't restore the unrepentant. And part of what you do is you admonish them, you exhort them to what? Repentance. Because repentance is the the grace gift of God that He provides so that they can turn around. And I want to talk about repentance in closing. Because here's another priority, and it's the fifth one, the priority of consideration. You considering where they are on the journey so you know how to optimize their restoration. Here's another way to say it. Is the sorrow of repentance godly or worldly? Is it true or is it not true? Is it legitimate or is it illegitimate? Because there's no... There's no reason to talk about things they should do until they're aware of their sin and the nature of it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, is the sorrow godly or worldly? I want to walk through these few verses in closing and I want to highlight some things that I think are important in the business of maintaining unity and community. The first is, verse 8, the potential sorrow of the confrontation, both for the confronter and the confronted. It may be a difficult and sorrowful circumstance when you engage the lost. Now, you may or may not know this, but Paul confronted the church at Corinth because they were in sin. They had a sinning brother that they were not dealing with biblically. This guy was living in an immoral relationship. They had refused to deal with that. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul gets onto the church and says, you are in sin. And if I was there, I would deal with you and with him. Because his soul is at stake, and I'd rather his body be destroyed that his soul might be saved, and you're denying him the benefit of restoration. And you're doing so by accommodating his sin, not dealing with it. So he's talking to the church about their sin. And he writes a letter and confronts them with that failure, their sin. Verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter. So Paul's letter caused sorrow in the church at Corinth and those who led it when he confronted their sin. So sometimes when the sinner is confronted, there's potential sorrow, not a happy encounter. Tears of joy don't necessarily roll down their cheeks, grateful for this interaction. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Isn't that interesting? I regretted what? Maybe sending the letter that caused you to be sad. Because sometimes when you deal with sin, not only are they sad, but you're sad because of the losses associated with that truth-telling. I don't regret it, though I did regret it. The reason I don't regret it now, or have a change of feeling, and that's the word regret. Some of your Bibles may say, I repented. I did repent of it. For I see that the, that letter, this confrontation, caused you sorrow. Though only for a while... 
But now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Verse 9, repentance involves a true change of mind and a sorry enough to change heart. There is a sorrow which comes from the will of God. It is God-produced. Godly sorrow produces something that only God can produce. The goodness of God produces sorrow, says Romans 2. This sorrow is the will of God, and the will of the confronter is not to harm but to help, but sorrow can be a part of the transaction. They need to be sad. Now, their sorrow may not be godly sorrow. It might be worldly sorrow. How do you know? Verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance, watch this, without regret. You know what without regret means? I don't regret changing my mind, changing my direction. I'm resolved. I'm not double-minded. I get it, and I'm headed in a new direction, and I don't regret it. I don't long for the sin I was involved with. I don't long to keep doing the things that have made me sorrowful. Because when it's truly godly sorrow, I don't want to go back. This is not to say I can't go back. This is not to say I won't struggle, but I don't want to go back. And I don't regret the direction I've taken. Because godly sorrow has housed in it a resolution that says, I'm headed in a different direction, and I want to go in that direction. I'm not going in that direction because I might lose my job or my marriage. I'm not going in that direction because I'm embarrassed. I'm going in that direction because God has made me sorrow and sorrowful enough to change the way I think. And sorry means I not only think differently, I feel bad for the way I was living and thinking. And I'm sorry enough to change. And, verse 10 says, and you may be familiar with this, but, oh, and by the way, that leads to salvation. Salvation is the big word for rescue. You could put the word restoration. If you're a Christian living in sin, you're going to heaven eternal salvation. But while you're living in sin, you're vulnerable to destruction and you need rescue from that. This is the salvation of restoration, not salvation in the way that you think of it eternally. Leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces what? Death. Death like Judas. Matthew 27 I sold him out. I realized what I had done. I give him the money back and I go and hang myself because the remorse. And it says he was remorseful. He was sorrowful. He was heart wrenched. But you know what he was heart wrenched over? Not his sin, but the consequences of his sin. This is Esau, Hebrews chapter 12. He did not, verse 17. He did not find repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You know what Esau was sad about? The birthright. Man, what I had, I gave up for the red stuff, the soup. And those losses, that consequence makes me sad. 
The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is worldly sorrow is focused on the consequences. Godly sorrow is focused on the sin and the injury to others and to God. Against thee, Psalm 51, and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Repentance is resolved. No regret. Your mind's not changing because your heart has changed because of godly sorrow. This leads to deliverance from sin and loss. Not the sorrow of the world, but the sorrow over the loss and consequences related to the injury to God, the injury to others created by your sin. That's the sorrow that brings life and salvation. True repentance has these qualities, and I know I'm at the end, so I'm going to read them and highlight them. Verse 11. This is so helpful, because here's what you want to know. What do I have? Worldly or godly sorrow? This dude is really heart-wrenched. The problem is you don't know why they're heart-wrenched. The tears are necessary, but they don't define reality by way of repentance. Are they sorry enough to change? Are they the sorrow of God, repentance, change of mind and heart? Well, verse 11 helps us. For behold, what earnestness this very thing this godly sorrow has produced in you. Earnestness is a Greek word which means strong desire. It's urgent action. It's earnest desire. Urgent diligence to the point of pain. And the earnestness has to do with dealing with the failure created by your sin. The way I've written it is, it's the earnestness of dealing with your sin and making amends. That's what I want to do. My sorrow produced an effect. That effect is, I got to deal with this. I'm in sin and I want to make amends. I want to address it. I want to talk to God and declare myself in need of grace and forgiveness. I want to talk to everybody I've violated and I want to make it right. And the word he chose is, I'm going to do this to the point of pain. Spude has the idea of urgent, fast, and no matter what it costs. Earnestness, because of godly sorrow. And then you have this series of words. What vindication, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. The word what means great. Like, wow, what is this? Another way to say it, what great what great, what great. In other words, it's undeniable. It's so obvious. They don't have to explain it because you can see it. The effects of the earnest sorrow of God drives them to display visible expressions of their repentance. And let me tell you what repentance doesn't involve. I'll tell you the big absence in real, in real repentance is the absence of self-defense. The real defense of the repentant claim is not the words that come out of their mouth. It's the actions that display they mean it. And when he says, what vindication? Here's the defense. This is the great thing. I know you're repentant. 
This is what brought me joy. Even though I caused you sorrow, I had sorrow. My sorrow's been exploded. Titus has showed up. And Titus says, you have repented. And you're earnest to defend yourself, not with your mouth, but your actions. And it's big vindication. It's big validation. It's undeniable validation. Undeniable indignation over what? Their sin. That's the second word, indignation, over their sin. They get it, they hate it, because godly sorrow doesn't justify my failure. It doesn't sound like I hurt you, I know I've hurt you, I'm sorry, but. It doesn't sound like that. I know I've hurt you. There is no but. There's no justification. They get it, they hate it. They're indignant not toward you, but towards themselves for their failure. You know what the Corinthians were saying? We did the wrong thing. And it makes us feel really bad that we didn't do what God would have wanted us to do. Or Paul, what you would have asked us to do. Indignation, not justification. Then there's the word fear. The word fear, phobon. Undeniable regard for God and his reputation, not your own. This is a godly sorrow that produces a concern about the honor of God. And a fear to not right the wrong and the relationships that have been injured by the failure. You know what this is? I'm afraid to not deal with this. I fumbled the ball. I'm indignant at myself. Not condemnation, but indignation. I'm not condemning myself. I'm not satisfied with myself. And I'm afraid that I've got to deal with this or it will be consequential to God and to everyone else, including me. That kind of fear. It's honor to God and it's fear to not resolve. Great longing is earnest affection to reconcile with all offended parties. It's a longing to be restored relationally and with everyone negatively impacted by your sin. You know what this is? I'm going to find whoever I need to find that's been negatively impacted by my failure, and I'm going to make it right. I'm afraid not to do it, and I can't wait to do it. And you know what? You don't have to prescribe these actions. This is godly sorrow produces this. Paul didn't tell them what to do. They just did it. I am going to give you the last word. Well, to zeal is burning emotion. It's a passion of my heart. There's a lot to that word. It's passionate pursuit to reconcile and repair what was lost or broken. This is more than longing. This is I'm laying awake at night until this gets done. This burns in me to reconcile and remedy. Great, what great avenging of wrong. This is the last thing. What avenging of wrong. I want to avenge by correcting what was the result of my sin. What I did was wrong, and I want to fix it. I want to avenge it. I want to address it. It's a cool Greek word. Out of my righteous, virtuous, godly sorrow, I want to fix what was wrong. I want to avenge it. I want to correct it. I long for that. I'm zealous for that. I'm afraid not to do that. My words don't justify my soul. My actions do. That's what brought joy to God. 
That's what brings joy to Paul. That's why Paul says, I made you sad, but I'm glad because it got you here. And where this is, is where life is. You know what that is? That's a priority that you have to pursue and a consideration you have to emphasize in order to know how to help those who need your help. And that's worth pursuing. Can you say amen to that? All right. Used up all my time and then some, so forgive me for that. Father, thank you for the time today. This real-time reality that we face where we live in community where people fumble and they need to be addressed and supported, encouraged and challenged and confronted. And Lord, help us to be faithful, to do that one-on-one and if necessary to conclude brothers so that we can walk someone home for their benefit, their blessing, and for the life we share. That's my prayer for us all in Jesus' name. Amen.